0: Alright, Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Ephesians chapter 4. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you to use. If you do not own a Bible, know that we have a stack of them on the table in the foyer. We'd love for you to grab one of those on your way out. Let it be our gift to you. Ephesians chapter 4. If you're not familiar with the Bible, know every Bible also comes with a table of contents in the beginning. It's a good thing to use. Don't be afraid to use the table of contents. The Bible's a big book. There's a lot in it, and that will help you navigate and find your way to Ephesians chapter 4. Last summer, my family and I went camping up at Deception Deception Pass, and it's one of our favorite areas to go camping as a family because it's just such a beautiful part of our state. And one afternoon, we decided to go on a hike, and there's a hike that takes you up to um, Lighthouse Point. It's about a two-mile hike, and, and it is... Uh, kid-friendly in theory and depending on how old your kids are mine was uh, about two at the time and and so we decided to go for it anyways and so we uh, decided to hike up to Lighthouse Point where we could get some just incredible views of the San Juan Islands and some other things and and as we took off on the trailhead my son Asher refused to walk he insisted upon being strolled, and that's where the rub comes in. He, he wanted to be strolled up the trailhead. Now, we had a Bob stroller, and a Bob stroller, if you don't know anything about strollers, I didn't for a while, but they're apparently one of these really fancy kind that has three wheels, and you can run with them and do some other fancy and fun things with. And so we had this Bob stroller, and we put Asher, Asher's a big boy, but uh, we, we put him in uh, this stroller, and we started pushing him up the trailhead. Everything was going fine uh, for the first stretch until eventually we hit uh, this little section where there were all these roots just protruding from the ground. And I didn't see them at first. I was just kind of moving along, trucking along with the stroller. But when that tire hit that first route, everything came to a stop. And little Asher uh, wasn't buckled in, so he just came shooting, you know, over into and dangling outside of the stroller. He he, he, he was a little mad. He was a little upset. I said, well, Asher, uh, do you want to walk now? And he said, no, uh, I want to push me, push me. And we said, all right, well, so we kind of tucked him back in the stroller and picked it up and carried the stroller stroller. over this stretch of roots, and then we laid down on another smooth section and started strolling again. But uh, we didn't get much further before we hit another stretch of roots, and things were very tough. They were very challenging. Eventually, I was working up a sweat. Uh, Bung Wai, my mother-in-law, she was working up a sweat trying to keep the stroller moving as we were carrying it over these roots. And eventually, I said, look, Asher, we are never going to get to where we're going unless you start walking. Uh, You got to start walking with us if we're going to get to where we're going. And and I share that with you because I'm stepping into a passage tonight, and I'm thinking about a theme tonight, one of our values called humble community. And I'm, I'm wondering if one of the reasons why, I'm wondering if some of us, as we've been following Jesus, we've been insisting for so long on being strolled in our discipleship, just kind of being pushed and carried along. And I'm wondering if one of the thoughts that Jesus wants us to think about tonight is, is that you and I are never going to get to where we're going as a church until we start walking. You and I are never going to get to where we're going as as followers of Jesus in this world if we insist on being strolled all the days of our discipleship. There comes a point in time when every one of us have to step out of this stroller and walk alongside other followers of Jesus, moving towards the goals that God has set for us in the gospel. When you step into the book of Ephesians, this is kind of a theme, the direction that he moves in Ephesians chapter 4. He's writing this letter from prison. He's being put in prison because of his testimony to the gospel, and he's learned about this church in Ephesus, and he's writing to encourage them, and he's writing to challenge them. In the first three chapters of this book, he's laying out uh, beautiful gospel realities, reminding the people that they are saved by grace through faith in Jesus, not of works, just exploring the beauty of God's gospel. But then when he turns the corner in chapter 4, verse 1, what does he say? He says, okay, the gospel does some things in us, and the gospel does some things through us, and so it's in light of the gospel that I want to encourage you to what? I want to encourage you to get out and walk. God wants his church to move to a particular destination. He wants his people to strive towards particular goals. But we're not going to get to that goals unless we step out of the stroller and we begin to walk together in obedience to Jesus. This is what he's saying in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He's saying there is a wonderful life to be engaged as followers of Jesus. And this is a wonderful life that you and I are to engage together. But in order to engage it fully, in order to get to the destination the Lord is leading us to, we've got to get out and walk. We've got to link arms and move up the trailhead together by grace, through faith in Jesus So what he's really diving into, even as he explores further, is this whole idea of maturation. The goal that is set out in this text is maturity. The goal that is set out in this text is the image of Christ being restored and reflected in all the followers of Jesus. He's saying, look, you are to grow up in your faith. You are to mature in your faith. And I'm wondering, what do you look for when you look for signs of maturity in people? What are some indications of maturity in uh, people that we observe growing up, not just in the faith, but just growing up in life? Well, you just think about human development. You think about infants growing into toddlers, toddlers growing into kids, kids growing into teenagers, teenagers growing into uh, adults, I guess. At some point, there's a shift. At some point in time, we don't really know where that marker is nowadays, but one of the things that, that you begin to notice as infants move and they develop and they mature. Maturity is gauged by what? It's gauged by one, their ability to walk. Their ability to live a personally responsible life. Their maturity is gauged not only through responsibility, but their, gauges, their maturity is also gauged by the contribution they begin to make to other people, the contributions they make to society. There's a communal contribution that is a sign of maturation. It is a sign of maturity. When you have personal responsibility and you start making communal contributions, that, those are indications of a maturing human, human being. And I would say that those are indications of a maturing follower of Christ as well. You begin to take responsibility for your participation in the things of God, you begin to take responsibility for the contributions you were making to the life and welfare of the church. And all of this is fueled by the gospel, which is why Paul, again, he moves. If you just go back and read at some point, I would encourage you, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we'll have to come back and study this as a church at some point. But he's just exploring these gospel realities only to turn the corner in chapter 4 and saying, okay, now, in light of that, walk in light of that grow in light of that contribute to the life of the body mature as followers of jesus now when we think about this text and we're going to kind of we're not going to dive into all the details there's a lot packed into these 16 verses but we're just going to kind of survey and take a bird's eye view of this passage to identify three dynamics of the gospel uh, for us tonight in light of these uh, in light of this maturation process and one the first thing you see in verses 1 through 6 uh, concerns this idea of how the gospel creates a new people in the church. The gospel creates a new people in the church. Now, it's important that you understand what that word new is in reference to because uh, sometimes when we talk about being a new person and being new people in Christ, sometimes we can apply some unrealistic expectations To ourselves and unrealistic expectations of those around us, we might think, well, uh, new is like a new computer. You purchase a new computer, you take it out of the box, it's ready to fire. It's, It's fully ready to do all the things that you want it to do. It comes ready made. Well, when we talk about the gospel creating a new people in the church, we're not talking about becoming followers of Jesus and then suddenly being zapped into mature followers of Jesus. So when we talk about new people, don't think computer coming out of the box, think newborn. Think newborn, new life, and there's a lot of growth that needs to take place. There's a lot of time that needs to occur for them to mature and to grow up in their faith. One of the reasons perhaps some of you have grown so frustrated with the church and with churches is because perhaps you've overlooked this dynamic of of being newborns and how churches are works in progress Yes, we are new people in the church, but we are new like newborns, and we have a lot to learn. Many of us are still immature, and we are in the process of growing up, and so what that means is you and I have to show a lot of grace towards each other. We have to be patient with one another. We have to love one another towards maturity. And so you think about being new people in the church, and there are a couple of thoughts from that. One of the things we need to realize or we need to kind of grab hold of as new people is recognizing that together we rest in the grace of God. Together we rest in the grace of God. And I know that's weird because uh, verse 1 talks about walking and this exerting energy, but then I'm saying rest in the grace of God. What, What I mean is, You do not step into the church and start trying to justify yourself before God or before anyone else. If you step into the church and you're not resting in the grace of God, you will not be gentle with another person. You will not be humble towards another person. You will not be patient towards another person. You will not love the other person. If you're not resting in the grace of God because you're trying to justify yourself and prove yourself to God and to other people in the church, you are not going to be able to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. The grace of God speaks to this idea that you and I have been saved or redeemed not because we proved ourselves to God. It's not like God said, okay, I want to create a new people in the world, so I'm going to have some tryouts. And so you can just come before God and you just kind of try out and you do your righteous things and you do your good works, hoping that uh, when you look on the the bulletin board and and the rosters laid out, your name made the cut. That's not what we're talking about when it comes to grace. When we're talking about grace, we're saying God has been far better to us than we've ever deserved. We're saying God has loved us so richly, so kindly. He's done everything for us to be saved. We do not have to save ourselves. He's done everything to qualify us to be his people in the church. We don't have to qualify ourselves by how well we walk or how well we talk or how well we engage in the Christian life. And so what that means is, as a new people in the church, together, we want to rest in that reality. And when we're resting in that reality, that's when gentleness and humility and patience and love will start to blossom. Because that reality has been brought to be for us because of what? Because Jesus was what? Jesus was gentle. Jesus was humble. Jesus was patient. Jesus loved us. So everything, this this manner of life that we're called to walk in, this way that we're growing together, it is all in response to this crazy reality that Jesus has accomplished for us. So together, as a new people, we want to rest in the grace of God. And then you move on and you get into verse 4, and you find this big emphasis on oneness. You find this emphasis on unity that is echoed all throughout this passage. And so this new people in the church, not only are we resting the grace of God, as we're growing, we are able to reflect the beauty of God. We're able to reflect the beauty of our God. We're able to show to the world what God is like. And one of the ways and one of the areas where we do that most richly in the church and one of the ways that oftentimes gets overlooked in the church today is through this idea of unity and diversity. One of the most beautiful aspects of who God is is his unity in the midst of his diversity you wonder what in the world does that mean well let me try to unpack that a little bit one of the things that Paul has emphasized in chapters 1 2 and 3 in subtle but significant ways is the triune nature of God the fact that God is trinity He's referred to God the Father, he's referred to God the Son, he's referred to God the the Holy Spirit. He does the same thing in these verses here. He refers to the Spirit in verse 3. One Lord in verse 5 is his title for Jesus, and he refers to God and Father in verse 6. So you see the Trinity, this triune nature of God. Now this is one of the most mind-boggling realities in the universe. It's not truth for your head. If you sit down and if you want to try to philosophize and figure out how the Trinity works, you're just going to run yourself ragged. You can't do it. The Trinity isn't truth for the head. The Trinity is truth for the heart. And what the Trinity refers to is that we worship one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And within the Godhead, you have unity and diversity. In the Godhead, you have distinction without separation, the Father and the Son are not the same. The Son and the Spirit are not the same. There is distinction without separation, but at the same time, there is union without confusion. There is unity without confusion. They're not bleeding into other, into one another in, this, in a way that betrays the integrity of each person of the Trinity. You're wondering, well, what does that mean? I don't know, but that's, that's what we're saying here. God is triune. And there's a beautiful unity in the midst of diversity that exists in the Godhead. Now, think about this. In the beginning of the Bible, God created the world, and in the world, he made human beings. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, how are human beings described? They are described as being created in what? In the image of God. So we were created in the image of God, and, and that means a lot of things. But then how did God create us in his image? Well, he did so by making us relational people. He did so by making us uh, thoughtful people with minds and spirit, all these things. But there's one way that God has created us in his image that we have perhaps overlooked or neglected in our discipleship. When God created human beings, he created them male and female. And he put them together so that male and female became one. And they became the one unit there in the Garden of Eden. And so what you have there in that first family unit is unity uh, without, um, is is this common oneness that existed in Eden, male and woman living together in the presence of God. And this unity, this common oneness was to characterize all of human beings and I think it had something to do with you and I being created in God's image. He created us originally in a community of oneness where we were one originally, but we weren't the same. Male and female had unity in the midst of their distinction. Male and female. But then what happened at the fall? Genesis chapter 3, sin came in, it broke everything up, it introduced division. So that in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, when you see that go down, uh, human beings were divided from their God and what? They were divided from one another. Men and women no longer got along very easily. Humanity did not get along with itself very easily. So that now we have division and discord that characterizes the fallen human condition. But when you think about one of the goals in redemption... If one of the goals in redemption is for God to recreate us in his image, if it has to do with restoring within us the image of God that had been affected by the fall, do you understand that that means that there is a communal dynamic to that? In other words, the way the image of God is restored and reflected in the world isn't simply by you as an individual, but by us together in the church. There is unity in the midst of our uh, distinction. There is oneness that should exist in the church that characterizes our shared faith in God and our shared purpose in the world. But at the same time in saying there's oneness in the church, this oneness isn't sameness. When you step into the body of Christ, one of the ways that you help us reflect the beauty of our God is by not trying to be like everyone else. When you step into the body of Christ, you do not lose your individuality. You do not lose your distinct personality. You do not all of a sudden meet Jesus and then go to church and start dressing differently, in most cases, as you had before you met Jesus. you don't, We don't all get the same haircut and wear the same clothes. We don't all listen to the same music and do the same things. If we engage in that type of uniformity, we will not reflect the beauty of our God who is three in one and one in three. And so it is in unity in the midst of our diversity is one of the ways that you and I reflect the beauty of God. We, show, we showcase to the world who God is and what God is like by stepping into community with one another and reflecting God's restored image, not just individually but corporately together. And so we are a new people in the church, resting in the grace of God and reflecting the beauty of God. And one of the ways that we do that is in our unity, in the midst of our diversity. I love, I love this aspect of the church. This is one of the things that that Paul would refer to as a mystery, as one of the mysteries of the gospel. Earlier in chapter 3, if you just turn back one page, you look at chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to what he's talking about here. He says in chapter 3, verse 6 this mystery is that the Gentiles are what? Fellow heirs. Fellow heirs with who? Fellow heirs with the Jewish people. These non Jewish people are fellow heirs. They, they are members of the same body. The same body with who? With Jewish people. And they are now partakers of the promise. The promise, promise in who? Well, the promise in Christ, the Jewish Messiah. And he does all this through the gospel. In other words, the mystery of the gospel is how God can bring Jews and Gentiles, religious and irreligious people, pull them together and form one people in them. And when a Gentile stepped into the church, that Gentile did not become Jewish. And when a Jewish person stepped into the church, that Jewish person did not become a Gentile. When Jews were brought into the church and Gentiles were brought into the church, what you had was a new people. A new people bound together by the blood of Jesus. A new people now relating to God through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A new people in the church. And it is in their unity in the midst of their diversity is where they reflected the beauty of the Godhead. And that's one of the privileges we have to play in the world today. Not by being like everyone else, but by being your redeemed self in the context of community journeying with people who don't look like you, talk like you, act like you, but who with you believe in Jesus, trusting in the gospel, and together we're growing and reflecting unity in the midst of our diversity. So 1 through 6 is a lot of that kind of dynamic, but then when he turns a corner in verse 7, he gets after another aspect of this unity in the midst of our diversity and how unity and diversity contributes to the maturation of the, of the church. How this reality, this dynamic, actually helps us mature as a new people. And it happens when you get into verse 7, and you see that the gospel gifts each person in the church. The gospel gifts each person in the church. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gospel gifts each person in the church. And he gifts each person in the church differently. Differently. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same passions. We don't all have the same talents and skills, and that is a good thing. He gifts each person in the church, and he does so with spiritual gifts. This is the emphasis in verses 9 and 10, spiritual gifts. And What's interesting about that 8, 9, and 10 is that Paul is quoting Psalm 68, verse 18. And if you go back and you read that psalm, you're going to see a picture of God ascending uh, the mountain, uh, going to the city of Jerusalem, and he's bringing his people with him. It's a picture of God as victorious, as he's redeemed his people, and he's leading them into this new land, and and it has this idea of gift-giving, this gift exchange is taking place as they're walking up the mountain. Well, Paul has taken that verse, and he's now viewing and interpreting that verse in light of the gospel. And he says in verse 9, he clarifies, well, he ascended. What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, that's a confusing verse, and it can mean a few things. Some scholars say, well, that's a reference to Christ. When he died, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. He went to hell. Uh, There are some scholars who believe that. That's kind of a traditional interpretation of that verse. But then there are others who uh, say, well, it's more of a reference to the incarnation. It's the reference of God coming to us, that he descended, he became human, and he walked among us, and he lived the life that you and I could not live. And he died the death that we should have died on the cross. He rose from the grave victorious. But you know that when he rose from the grave, he kept rising. He ascended, and he then took his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And from that position, Jesus then gave gifts to his people. God then graced his people with power. And that power would come in the form of what? The form of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit would come gifts, gifting each one of us in unique ways to participate in the life of the body and to help the body mature. And so whether you say Christ went to hell on the cross in that way or it was a reference to the Incarnation, it still gets to the same idea that the whole point here is that Jesus is victorious and in His victory, He's given us spoils. And those spoils come in the form of our redeemed talents and the gifts that He provides us with so that we might serve the body and contribute to the life of the church. Now, when it talks about Jesus ascending, He did not ascend into heaven and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of his father because there wasn't anything left to do. There was still more to be done, but he ascended in order to, uh, because he had purchased the power, we needed to do the things that Jesus wanted us to do and to become the people Jesus wanted us to become. And so when you talk about spiritual gifts, we're talking about the various ways God manifests his grace through his people to mature his people. That's what a a spiritual gift is. It is God manifesting His grace through His people to mature His people. And all throughout the New Testament, there's an emphasis on spiritual gifts, on on how God gives gifts to the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 15, and Romans 12, I believe. There are several lists in the New Testament. I don't think any list is complete, and I don't think every list is, is all that there is. I don't think they're comprehensive. But there are all kinds of ways in which God gives his people to uh, manifest his grace so that other people might grow and mature in the faith. And when you move on into verse 11, you move from the synthesis of gifts in general to uh, some things more specific in verse 11. So that the gospel gifts each person in the church with, on one hand, spiritual gifts, but on the other hand, spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders, in verse 11, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. He gave these leaders to the church. And he gave these leaders to the church to equip the saints for what? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So each person in the church has been gifted with spiritual gifts, and every person in the church has been gifted with spiritual leaders. Now, the reason spiritual leaders exist in the church is to help you unlock your spiritual gifts and to leverage your spiritual gifts towards the maturation and the growing of people in the gospel. We have a twisted understanding of what leadership is supposed to do in the church. And we have a twisted understanding of what leadership is supposed to be about in the church. And part of the problem, part of the reason that is, is because we've been bad leaders. Bad leadership gives people the impression that the church exists to provide them with a platform for their leadership. Bad leadership gives churches the impression that churches exist to provide them with an opportunity to exert and to maximize their influence. But what you see in this text, in a gospel understanding of biblical leadership, is that The church doesn't exist to prop leaders up. Leaders exist, in a sense, to prop up the church, to build up the church, to equip the church, to mature the church. We, leaders, exist to serve you. We exist to equip you to do the works of the ministry. But what that also means is that we as leaders, we exist to not only equip you, it means that this whole idea of doing ministry It's not something that you should expect your leaders to do for you. Don't expect me and Bryant and the ministry team leaders and the other staff of our church, the elders of our church, whatever the case may be, do not expect us to do ministry for you. We are to do ministry with you. Not for you, but with you. That's what he's saying. God has given these leaders to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that we can all grow up together as we're being equipped and encouraged to do the things that Jesus wants us to do in the church and in the world. So we want to have a healthy understanding of spiritual gifts and spiritual leadership. But again, we, won't, we don't want to uh, look past the details of verse 11 necessarily. When you look at verse 11, you're going to see five uh, leaders, five types of giftings present there. And I think this list is very informative to how a church can grow to maturity. I think if you and I are going to mature, if we're going to begin to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, these five giftings, these five leadership capacities should be multiplying among us, should be expanding throughout the body. And so let me just give you a profile of each one of these and hopefully maybe they can uh, encourage you to think about, well, maybe Jesus has wired me that way. Maybe that's how God has programmed my heart so that I can contribute to the maturation of the body in these kinds of ways. Well, first you have this idea of the apostles. Now, when you read that word apostle there, I don't think that word is referring to the, or we don't want to interpret that as capital A apostle. We're not talking about Peter and Paul and those guys. That was a unique crew that God used to do something very unique in the world. But there's still this apostolic dynamic that is at work in the life of the church that we need to hold on to. And so we want to think about being apostolic as being these types of people who like to start new works and like to engage in new endeavors. They're great starters of things. They're entrepreneurial in their wiring. They love doing things fresh. And so a person who may be gifted in this way, they're asking questions like, what new opportunities uh, do we as a church have for mission?" What are some new ways that we can serve Jesus in this city? Uh, apostolic, uh, apostolically gifted people are thinking along those lines. These are visionaries and dreamers. These are the type of people who, in the church, they're always messing with the status quo. They're always trying to change things. They're always trying to disrupt things in a healthy and holy way. Hopefully, if they're maturing, but they're there because they want to understand that we have a. They want to explore new ways of magnifying and multiplying the gospel through a given context. They're always wondering, what can we start? How can we do things in a new, fresh kind of way? Now, one of the things about these five gifts, these apostles, and, is that they're interdependent, that you don't want a church full of a bunch of apostles. Uh, you don't want a, le- a, a whole leadership crew that is all apostolic. And the reason for that is because uh, one, each one of these gifts come with some weaknesses that we have to be cautious of. And so if you're gifted with an apostolic capacity and if we were just full of churches who like to, full of people who like to start things, what's going to happen is we're going to leave people behind. People are going to get stepped on. People are going to feel like they're being used in the church and not, being, not participating in the ministry of the church. Apostles have great vision and they're very active. They're go-getter types, but we need some of these other gifts that are present in this passage to kind of make sure that the body isn't being left behind and that people's needs aren't being neglected in route to some holy ambition that an apostle might have. So you have an apostle there who's thinking about new, uh, new ways to do things. Uh, listed here is also prophets. Now prophets are the type of people who are always usually asking, well, how can we know God more deeply? How can we be more faithful to the heart of God and, and God's dynamic activity in a given moment or a given context? These prophetic types are the types of people, perhaps in your missional community, who like to challenge the group. Sometimes, perhaps, these prophetic types like to correct the group. They're really big on sound doctrine, and they're really big on wanting to apply truth. Uh, Prophets have a tendency of seeing things as black and white. They see things with a a crystal clarity that sometimes makes other people uncomfortable. Prophets don't like gray, and that's a problem because a lot of life is gray, right? Right? But what we need is some prophets to to be at work in the body to help us kind of sift through the fog of life in this world, to help us begin to see things with a little more clarity than than many of us tend to see things. So we need prophetic types in our church who can kind of cut through all the noise and the chaos of this world and bring some clarity into a situation, some clarity into a problem. That's how these gifts can work. Now... One of the weaknesses of of the prophetic types is that these types of people can sometimes, uh, or no, I'm sorry, this isn't really a weakness. This is something that's really uh, good in the sense that prophets have a tendency to keep churches from becoming overly pragmatic. And if we have a church, if we're just constantly trying to control things, if we're constantly trying to maneuver things to accomplish certain goals and intentions that we have and we become very solution-driven and very pragmatic in our steps to accomplish certain goals, prophets are the ones who remind us, look, Don't forget that you're a part of something that you can't really control. God is bigger than your plans. He's bigger than the steps you're trying to take. Maybe God wants to bring you to that same destination, but maybe he wants to take you in a roundabout way to get there. And he wants to do work in you as he's doing work through you. Prophets remind us of that. So they're gifts to the church. But then some of the weaknesses that prophets can sometimes beat people up with the truth. They can sometimes come across as abrasive and... And again, this is why these gifts are mutually dependent. We, we need apostles and we need prophets. But then you get into number three and you have evangelists. Evangelists are the type of people who's, who's asking questions like, will this help people meet Jesus? They're always thinking about the outsider. They're always wondering, well, is the language the preacher's using on Sunday nights, does that make any sense to a person who doesn't know Jesus? A lot of times it probably doesn't. But the evangelists in our church help us think through how are we introducing people to Jesus? How are we engaging lostness? A lot of evangelists prefer hanging out with non-Christians. They actually prefer that than hanging out with Christians. But they hang out with these non-Christians with the burden of introducing them to Jesus. That's what they want to do. But one of the weaknesses of the evangelistic types is that they focus so much on the outside that they devalue the inside. And the problem with the evangelists is sometimes they can become very judgmental of the church. Why aren't you guys doing enough to connect with people outside the church? Why are you guys not sharing the gospel more? And so evangelists can sometimes uh, lapse towards judgmental. But if that evangelist is maturing, if he's growing in the context of the body, what are they helping us do? Well, they're motivating us to go outside. They're keeping us from navel-gazing as a bunch of Christians. They want us engaging lostness. That's evangelists or gifts to the church. And then fourth, we have shepherds. And these people are very needed, especially when you think about apostles and prophets and evangelists. You need shepherds to come in and to provide some sobriety and to make sure people are being cared for in tangible ways. So shepherd types tend to ask the question, are we really caring for the people in the church? Are we shepherding people? Are we nurturing people? Are we loving people or overlooking people? Shepherds are thinking about those questions. Shepherds are burdened by any individual who might fall through the cracks of the community. And these types of leaders, this type of gifting is needed all throughout our body. We need more shepherds in the church. And these types of people aren't content with being shepherds by name only. These are the types of people who want to be involved in life with us. They want to focus on sheep, not just the flock. They want to focus on individuals, not just groups. Shepherds are pastoral. Shepherds are loving. Shepherds are nurturing. And we need shepherds in our midst. Do you see how it can be dangerous if you have just a bunch of one to the neglect of the other? If we have a bunch of apostles and no shepherds, we're not going to be a very mature church. If we have a bunch of evangelists but no prophets, we're going to be a very shallow church. If we have a bunch of apostles but no shepherds, we're going to be very ambitious, but our ambition is going to run away with us, and that's not going to lead us anywhere mature. And so we need all of these operating and engaging, uh, uh, appearing in the life of our church. And then lastly, you have teachers mentioned here. Teachers are those who like to train people in biblical knowledge and obedience, They're wondering, okay, are we just relaying information or are we showing people and instructing them on how to apply that information? Teachers want to not only understand the Bible and explain the Bible, they want to apply the Bible. They want to make truth accessible and understandable. They want to help people process the beauty of the scriptures and the beauty of doctrine. These types of people love to research, but one of the weaknesses of the teacher is that they can kind of shore up in an office somewhere and detach themselves from people just giving themselves to theoretical ideas rather than immersing themselves into the body seeing real flesh and blood people that who's who will be affected by that which is being taught they love research and another potential weakness of the teacher is that a teacher can talk too much i don't know who that is but a teacher can talk too much and They can go on and on and give too much information, more information than probably what I did with the Trinity just a moment ago. That's one of the weaknesses that teaching uh, teachers can slide into. I remember in some of my counseling sessions, I'm sitting down with someone and I'm talking with them about what they're struggling with. And the teacher in me just wants to explain, look... Uh, you just need to see, you, you need to understand the situation. And I just want to explain them out of their problem. And so rather than listening, I'm talking way too much. And that's not, that's not good shepherding. That's not good discipleship. This is why, again, we need unity in the midst of our diversity. We need all of these gifts and types of, of personalities and people and gift sets uh, living and thriving and growing and serving in the body. Now, you might be wondering, well, do I fall in either of these categories and wondering, well, how do I know if I do? And I would encourage you to to consider three things. I would consider one, what are you passionate about? What are you passionate about? Perhaps as we walk through these five gifts and there was a particular one and that's that's when you lit up. That's when you really tuned in because that was kind of scratching an itch that you have, a passion that is at work in you. Perhaps there's abilities that you have shown forth in your life. You're you're a really good listener or you're a really good communicator or you're really good at befriending people who aren't Christians. You can speak their language uh, and those types of things. Just those abilities are present in you. But it's not just about discovering your passions and your abilities. You want to think about what gifts are being affirmed by other people. We discover our spiritual gifts in the context of the body when other people are seeing them, noticing them, recognizing them, and calling them out. And so one of the best ways you can serve the person sitting next to you is by identifying in them spiritual gifts. Help them to see things that they can't see. Many people are gifted. Each person in the church is gifted, but many of us struggle with insecurities and we don't really know where we're good at and what we're strong in. And so we need people to step into our lives and to show us that which we can't see, call attention to gifts and abilities and passions in our lives that perhaps correspond with these categories and with these types of gifts. And when we begin to do that, when we begin understanding that the God In the gospel, we are each gifted with spiritual gifts and we have spiritual leaders to help us. That's when the gospel would begin to grow. We will, uh, the gospel will start growing all people in the church. This is when the gospel will start maturing all people in the church. And this is really where Paul goes in verses 13 through 16. And there's a lot there and I won't read all of it, but the gospel doesn't tend to grow all people in the church as we're stepping in, sinking into our unity in the midst of our diversity. But if that's true, if if maturation is the goal, then how do we know if we are spiritually immature? How do we know if we're strolling rather than walking in our discipleship? How do we know if we're just being pushed and not participating in the journey? Well, you can see it. Let me encourage you to examine how spiritual immaturity can show up in light of this passage. Now, remember, a lot of the movements in this text is moving from uh, childhood or infancy to adulthood to maturity. That's kind of the image that Paul is fleshing out in this text. And because of that, we can talk about newborns and we can talk about infants and we can get a picture of what spiritual immaturity looks like. You see, spiritual immaturity shows up in what what can be described as a lack of discernment. Spiritual immaturity shows up when there is a lack of discernment, when we don't know truth from lies, when we don't know facts from fiction, when we are being tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There's no discernment. That is a sign of spiritual immaturity. I see this in my one-year-old Adeline all the time. She's not very discerning. That's because she's not very mature. She can't. She doesn't know the difference between play doh and jello. So she's going to eat the play doh if that's in front of her. Why? Because that hasn't grown. She hasn't grown up yet. She's maturing, but while she is immature, she lacks discernment. And one of the ways that spiritual immaturity shows up in our lives and in our church is when we lack discernment. We are easily deceived. We are easily manipulated. We latch on to every new idea we hear, every cool phrase that is uttered in the name of Jesus. We are all about and we run to without discerning whether or not it's true to the gospel, whether or not it's faithful to the scriptures, and that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. But not only does spiritual immaturity show up with a lack of discernment, spiritual immaturity shows up with a lack of stability. Again, my daughter Adeline, she can walk, she can run around the house, but she's not very stable. She falls down all the time. She slips on the floor consistently. If you rush past her swiftly, she's going down. She's not very stable. This is the image of spiritual immaturity that Paul is identifying in this text, saying, look, a spiritually immature person lacks stability. This means this type of person is all about what feels good than what is good. This person is all about what feels right rather than what is right. And so we become unstable in our thinking, unstable in our, in our discipleship, because it's all about moving from one emotion to the next. If we feel it, we're in it. When we lose the feeling, we lose it. We're, just, we're unstable people, and that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. See, one of the, on the flip side of all of these was one of the signs of spiritual maturation is you become more discerning and you become more stable. You're not easily pushed around. You're not easily knocked around by the circumstances of life or by the fleeting emotional state that all of us live in. We're not going to be pushed around and manipulated by our emotions. We're going to live by faith rather than feelings. That's a sign of spiritual maturity. But then there's one other sign of spiritual immaturity that's present here and that's this whole idea of self-obsession. And anybody who's been around a baby or a toddler, you know this to be a sign of immaturity. I love my daughter Adeline, but while she's one, She's all about Adeline. Everything's about what she wants, she wants. It doesn't really matter what you want. It's what she wants. She's self-obsessed, and that is a sign of spiritual immaturity. If 80% of your conversations are all about you, chances are you're spiritually immature. We are self-obsessed when, in our spiritual immaturity, and what's interesting about that is when you think about the way Paul uses the imagery of the body in this text... Body parts, members of the body, only call attention to themselves when something isn't right, when something is wrong, right? You don't think about your big toe until you stub your big toe, and then you think about it all the time. Well, if you are self-obsessed, what do you think that says about the human ego? If we are self-obsessed, that is a surefire indication that something isn't right, and the fallen human condition is characterized by a self-centeredness, a self-obsessionness that, that, that is unhealthy, it's not right, it is an indication of spiritual immaturity. And if we're all about ourselves in the church, we're strolling, we're not walking, we're showing up to the church, but we're not growing up in the church And so we want to be aware of that. We want to think, well, are these things true of me? And then we want to wonder whether or not this spiritual immaturity is lingering in my life because I'm showing up Sunday after Sunday, but I'm not really growing up. And the reason why I'm not growing up is because I'm just showing up and I'm not growing up because I'm not doing some of the things that the gospel compels us to do. And so as we close, let me identify three ways when spiritual growth occurs. Three ways that you can start maturing in your faith, that we can start maturing together. One is that spiritual growth occurs as we sink into the body of Christ. As we sink into the body of Christ, we're not just showing up and getting close to the church. We're sinking into the body of Christ. We're getting involved with the body of Christ. We're stepping into relationships where we can be known and know others. We're sinking into the body of Christ. Spiritual maturity and growth in Christianity doesn't happen just because you have individual personal quiet times. It doesn't happen if you only read the Bible by yourself in a closet or by yourself on a trailhead while hiking. It doesn't happen that way ordinarily. Do you want to know how many times the New Testament tells disciples to have a personal quiet time? Zero. Not one time will you read in Paul's epistles have a personal quiet time, devote seven minutes a day to Jesus, walk through this plan of reading the Bible by yourself alone. Now, There's certainly, there's value to that, but if that's all you do, you're not going to grow. If all you do is follow Jesus by yourself, you're not going to grow. You're missing the entire point of how you are to rest in the grace of God with others, how you are to reflect the beauty of God with others, unity in the midst of diversity, sinking into the body of Christ. So yes, have your quiet times, read the Bible, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but don't reduce growth to that discipline. Spiritual growth occurs as you sink into the body, as you start reading the Bible with other people. You start talking about Jesus with others. You start praying, not just by yourself, but with the person sitting next to you and the people you're eating dinner with. You start engaging in those types of activities, sinking into the life of the body. We we grow spiritually. Not only do we sink into the body of Christ, but as we do that, what do we do? Well, we start... We begin seeking to serve, not simply to be served. We seek to serve, not simply to be served. Now, a lot of times when we first step into the church, we ask the question, how can this church serve me? And there is an appropriate time for that question to be asked. Because sometimes we need to be served. Sometimes we need to be encouraged. Sometimes we need to be nurtured. But at some point in time, you've got to graduate from the question, how can this church serve me to how can I serve the church? You've got to mature beyond that question. Stop being so self-obsessed and self-focused and become become other-oriented in your discipleship. Wondering, how can I serve those around me? What are some ministries that need my help, that could use my gifts, that could use my passions, that could use my talents and skills? How can I contribute those to the body? And you'll find that spiritual growth happens as you do that. Jesus discipled his followers in stride. As they were walking through life together, serving the world together, they were doing things, growing together in that capacity. And we grow in a similar trajectory today. And then lastly, not only as we sink into the body of Christ, seek to serve, not simply to be served, getting involved in minister teams, various things, we grow spiritually as we speak and hear the truth in love. This is where Paul lands in verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way. Speaking the truth in love. But it's not just speaking it, obviously. We want to hear the truth in love. Truth in love, saturating our speech to one another. Do you notice how all five of those gifts in verse 11 have have to do with speaking, have to do with the use of words? I mean, all of them have to do with speaking, communicating something. And here, Paul qualifies our speech. We must speak and hear the truth in love. What this means is you and I must get to the point where we are absolutely honest with each other. Absolutely honest with each other. But our absolute honesty is seasoned with goodwill, seasoned with graceful intentions, seasoned with love. So that if we ever have to correct one another, we understand that that correction is coming from someone who loves me and someone who loves the church. If we ever uh, have to call sin out in one another's lies, we're going to do so speaking the truth in love, both and two sides of the same coin. Truth and love. Forever characterizing our speech, how we speak and how we listen to each other, truth and love. Two sides of the same coin. Now what happens if you have a coin that has two heads on it? Just has the same same on both sides. Well, you have counterfeit currency, don't you? It's useless. Well, if you're engaging... The body, and if you're living in community where you have truth without love or love without truth, you are engaging in counterfeit Christianity. It's a counterfeit currency. If you think you can love another person without speaking truth to that person, you are not loving them. I love my son Asher. At times, Asher thinks he can fly. If I love my son Asher, the moment I see him climb up on the counter, I'm going to speak some truth. Hey, buddy, you have arms, not wings. I'm going to tell you, if you you jump off that, you're going to break yourself. That's truth and love, right? Absolute, honest, good intention. I want what's best for my boy because I love him. And because I love him, I'm going to speak truth to him. And he may get sad because he wants to fly. He wants that ability. But I love him. It's truth and love, truth and love. Or... Let's say you're speaking truth to people, but your truth isn't seasoned with love. The truth you speak will not be transformative. It will not have an impact because not only do we want people to hear truth, we want them to feel the warmth of our truth. We want people to sense the warmth of gospel realities as we're speaking truth into one another's lives. We need truth in love, not one without the other. Now, I know it's hard to keep that balance. Not many of us do it well. And as we mature, we become better at speaking truth in love. We become better at balancing these two sides of the equation. And one of the ways that this happens, knowing that no one can keep these two things together absolutely perfectly in every conversation, that is a sign of our immaturity. It is a sign of ways we need to grow. But how do you get there? Well, you get there by what? Believing the gospel. Remember, everything that Paul's talked about, 1, 2, and 3, is gospel. Chapter 4 is application. It's the gospel driving this. And when you think about the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is truth and love, isn't it? The cross is truth and love because on the cross, God says some true things about us that we might not want to hear. On the cross, God tells us what's true, saying, look, you're a sinner, You're separated from God. Look, uh, you you may be good when you compare yourself to other people, but when you compare yourself to God, you're not very good. That's that's the truth that the gospel declares to us. So you have truth when you look at the cross, but you also have love there too. Because while you and I were still yet sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in this. Christ died for us. Truth is, you're a sinner. Love is, I'll save you. That's the gospel, truth in love. And so if you and I want to grow in that dynamic, if we want truth and love to start characterizing our speech, it's going to happen the more we believe the gospel. You see, the way you mature in the faith isn't by growing beyond the gospel or getting over the gospel or wandering away from the death and resurrection of Jesus. The way you mature in your faith is by sinking deeply into that reality time and time and time again. That's maturation. We rest in the grace of God. We reflect the beauty of God. We sink into the body of Christ. We serve one another in light of how we've been served by Jesus. And we speak the truth in love as we interact and talk and listen and engage one another in relationship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to process these truths and these realities. I ask God that you would form us into a humble community who is is a new people in the church, a people who is gifted together by your grace and a people who are growing together here in the church that we might continue to learn how to rest in your grace and how to reflect your beauty in the ways in which we serve one another, love one another in ways in which we serve the world and love the world. God, we ask and we pray that you would bring this about in Jesus' name, amen.